0: It's time for Decal Download, your source for news and information from the Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning. We'll hear from Commissioner Amy M. Jacobs and special guests to give you an update on all things decal. This is Decal Download. Downloading now.
1: And welcome back to Decal Download. I'm Rich Griffin, Chief Communications Officer here at the Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning, along with Commissioner Amy Jacobs, as always. Well, who's ready for back-to-school from virtual at-home learning to in-person classroom instruction, and everything in between. But this year, it's about more than backpacks and notebook paper. It's asking if your child is socially and emotionally prepared for school in the age of COVID-19. Commissioner, today we're talking with two experts from DECAL and the State Department of Education.
2: Absolutely, and I'm so glad it's very timely uh, for our podcast to talk about this because school is always exciting. Back to school is always exciting, but this year it's going to look a lot different uh, no matter if you're in person or if you're doing distance learning. So we've got to talk about uh, social-emotional health and how to prepare kids for that.
1: And joining us to talk about COVID considerations in returning to school is Allison O'Hara, Program Director of Inclusion and Behavior Support with our Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning. And as you know, we work very closely with the Department of Education, and we're proud to have with us today Cheryl Benefield, Program Manager for Safe and Supportive Schools with the Georgia Department of Education. We're proud to be in the same building, Twin Towers. However, today we are socially distant and uh, kind of reporting in from our homes. Ladies, welcome to the podcast today.
0: Hi. Hi. Thank you. Good morning.
1: Well, we are right in the middle, as the commissioner says, of returning to school we 've had some that um, have already headed back, several others that are happening this week and next week. What are the social emotional implications of starting school uh, you know under normal circumstances, yet alone versus the obvious challenges of of covid nineteen?
0: Uh, This is Cheryl, and I would say that in a typical year, anytime we're starting school, you're going to have students who have some fear and anxiety. They're just a little anxious about coming back to school. Some of them are going to have a problem with school avoidance. They're just not going to want to come to school at all. But I think this year, as we're looking at the impact of COVID, we're going to have Uh, more around that particular area, but also we're likely to see some more difficulties in concentration. It may be a little more difficult to attend to the tasks that we're asking of our students. Um, Depending on conversations that may have happened at home or in other areas, we may have students who come back to school with a little bit of distrust and some suspicion about the people who are around them and you know things that are happening as far as safety precautions go. Some students, uh, their social emotional dysregulation may manifest as physical symptoms. We can, we can see that in children who have frequent uh, stomach aches or headaches, things of that nature. And, you know, ultimately and, and regretfully, we will have some students who are dealing with grief and some survivor guilt. So there's a lot going on with our students and a lot that they're going to be dealing with as they come back in this unique situation. In your presentations, you talk about learning to
2: recognize the signs of emotional distress in young children. How do we do that?
3: Yeah, so this is Allison, and, you know, teachers have a lot of power. Uh, They observe students day in and day out. Um, So the key to recognizing potential signs of emotional distress in children is to just really do your best to observe. Um, Also, build relationships with young children, uh, specifically, um, and their families, so that that communication is open and trusting. Um, A lot of teachers already do a really good job with this, naturally, uh, but teachers should really take the time to build a connection with each and every student, especially now. Um, because that power of relationship building is going to increase a student's willingness and ability to convey, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm scared, I'm feeling nervous, I'm feeling anxious. Um, and then by using observations, we're able to say, hmm, I'm really noticing some changes in this, in this child, I'm noticing Uh, that they're not adapting to the new routine, um, even after several weeks, or noticing that they are distancing themselves from their peers, or like Cheryl just mentioned, um, that the child is uh, complaining of physical ailments, um, all of those things. So uh, teachers have, you know, their eyes are extremely important during this time.
2: Absolutely. I was going to ask, will you talk a little bit about emotional literacy, what is it? And what is the best way to read emotions at the start of a day?
3: Yeah, so now is a really great time to be talking about emotional literacy. So for any human being, emotional literacy is our ability to recognize feelings and emotions, and then be able to communicate those feelings to others. So obviously, particularly for our young learners in the very early stages of developing emotional literacy, um, conveying emotions in healthy and appropriate ways is still something they're, they're learning and, and trying to master. Uh, I will say that we at DECAL, in partnership with Georgia State University, offer a number of free tools such as visuals and scripted stories and posters that can be used in the classroom to teach emotional literacy. Um, I strongly encourage teachers during the start of the 2020-2021 school year to really proactively teach children how to recognize and communicate their emotions, um, but also teach emotional regulation skills. What do we do with those feelings when we're those strong feelings when uh, when that's happening, uh, one of the tools that I love uh, the most is the poster we have available that depicts uh, common emotions through faces. Uh, our actual our Cali um, decal uh, mascot is uh, showing a number of faces, and young students are able to uh, take a clip with their name at the beginning of each school day, and they can go and put their clip. Uh, next to the feeling that they are experiencing at the beginning of the school day to kind of check in with the teacher so the teacher knows um, when to ask questions, when to provide more support. Um, And then children can be encouraged to move that clip throughout the day if they start to experience um, maybe an uncomfortable feeling or emotion um, and be able to start conveying that feeling to other people so they can best be supportive. So that'll be available. We're providing some links within our social media posts. uh, That that set of resources will uh, be provided to you all um, through our social media posts.
1: Great idea. We love to see Cali out there and particularly used in productive ways like this that can actually help uh, children on a daily basis. Allison and and Cheryl, you know, we think back to mid-March when all of this happened, schools began to close Um, We were living in a virtual world from that standpoint to try to finish out the school year. Now, here we are in August returning to school um, under different circumstances. You know, we're looking at traditional and hybrid and full distance learning and and all of the implications of those things. How important is understanding the family's life and routine prior to COVID-19 to better understand kind of what's happening with them now.
3: Yeah, so um, I'll touch on this for a moment and then would love Cheryl to share some of her expertise. You know, it's always important to build trusting relationships with families to promote that open school-home communication. And for a lot of families, this pandemic has had a number of, uh, just a lot of impact on the resources and the home routines Uh, that have really had to shift dramatically for families in order to stay afloat. Um, Strain within families can absolutely impact child development. We know this. Um, And while families in a typical year are able to anticipate summer break, um, many of them are able to plan and kind of adapt accordingly. This pandemic through a lot of families for a loop, uh, schools were suddenly shut down, some family members may have lost jobs, child care became extremely limited, as we all know, um, and unfortunately, most of the resources families rely on typically um, over a typical summer break just weren't there, and this left many families scrambling and stressed, and I'm sure all, each of us on this uh, podcast has experienced a little bit of that or to some degree.
1: And so how do we compare returning from a summer break to returning from really isolation? How do we weigh that?
0: Well, I would say that we we really have to consider that typically a summer break is six to eight weeks, depending on where a student may be in school, maybe a little longer. But now we're looking at a five to six month break. So we know that routines and schedules have really been disrupted and are different. There have been different expectations. If if you're doing school at home, certainly you're going to have different expectations than your child would experience in a classroom. And priorities in the family have changed, um, as Allison was saying. There's been a, a great impact on families. And one of the things that we're really focusing on in um, the education space is we want to make sure that while we're considerate and considering the impact of everything that's been going on on our children, that we don't automatically jump to the presumption that every child who's experienced a traumatic event has become clinically traumatized and might be in need of, of uh, clinical services. It's uh, There will be students who have been impacted to that degree. And certainly as we come back from isolation, it's important that we recognize some things that we see, but also recognizing that some of what we see is going to be exactly this. It's the difference in returning from a summer break and returning from isolation. If you have students who haven't been up Uh, to catch a bus at six o'clock in the morning for six months, suddenly doing that is going to cause a change in behavior. Um, It would even after summer, but it certainly would after this big a stretch. So there are going to be things that we see that are impacts of the break in Uh, routine and uh, our impacts from the events that may have occurred in isolation, and then there are some things that we really just need to keep a more distinct eye on and keep a closer look at. So I would say the major difference is, again, the length of time and how some of these occurrences may have impacted children during that isolation break.
2: Those are all very good points. You're so right. There's a lot, a lot of things that uh, students and teachers are going to have to deal with. Talk a little bit about the more obvious challenges that children will be facing if they're returning to school in person.
0: A lot of that's going to depend on age. Um, Some things will be more difficult for younger children, while others are going to be a lot more difficult for older students. So it's going to be age dependent, um, particularly when we're talking about masks, but also Uh, one of the big challenges that we're presuming children will face, it's going to be some of the, again, the conversations and attitudes that I alluded to before. Um, And not, of course, not to politicize anything, but there are conversations and there are stances that people have and really strong beliefs. And in respecting those beliefs, you know, a lot of schools are allowing choice around masks and around um, certain precautions that are being taken. And with that though, comes the challenge of children who feel really strongly one way or the other. So I think that's going to be something that we may not really be thinking about a lot, but we need to be thinking about. Um, And it may impact uh, slightly older children, but I know as a former elementary educator myself, a lot of times we see in elementary education, particularly a lot of the attitudes from community, from, uh, different surroundings that children are in or from family, those kids really absorb that. And that's what they come to school with. So being respectful of that, if a child says or does something that's really, you know, you, you need to have a moment with, to keep that in mind, that, um, kids are, are, as we all know, they repeat what they hear and they see what they say uh, or say what they see. So, you know, just keeping in mind that we need to be gentle in those conversations with children and and just really pay attention to that.
3: Yeah, yeah. And so many great points. Cheryl and I actually chatted about this yesterday, um, and we were talking about how some of our older students, they have more access to the news and social media, and so their awareness of what's been going on with the pandemic is probably greater than our, one of, some of our younger learners in pre-K or in child care. Um, so those conversations that we have with students really need to be developmentally appropriate. And we strongly encourage uh, teachers in childcare or in pre-K to utilize developmentally appropriate tools to discuss COVID. So we've got a lot of social stories uh, that we'll be recommending around masks and why we wear them, um, uh, around what is COVID and ways to social socially distance while also engaging with your friends and um you know, greeting and playing with your friends. So uh, just know that those resources are available. We strongly encourage teachers and families to use them.
1: Let's talk for a second about mask and how to effectively communicate uh, using mask in a classroom. I know for me, uh, just with the limited amount of, uh, you know, being in a store or, being out in public, it's it's a challenge to communicate because it's taking away facial expressions that, you know, communicate a lot of what we're trying to say uh, to people. So I feel a little limited. Is that normal? And are there ways to better communicate using masks?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all kind of keenly aware right now uh, of how much we really do depend on facial expression and nonverbals to get our messages across and to receive messages. And that's not any different for those exchanges between students and teachers. Um, I think teachers really are going to encounter a uh, greater difficulty communicating with their students while wearing masks. Um, the good news is that there are some strategies that teachers and really all adults can be using to kind of boost that communication. Um, The first tip that I would mention is just be prepared to take your time. Um, Keep in mind that for especially young learners, you're gonna need to repeat yourself more than you already have to, um, sans mask. And uh, be sure to abbreviate your messages, try and keep them as concise as possible. Um, and not overly detailed. And then additionally, communicating with gestures is so very beneficial. We can use our hands and our body positioning to kind of indicate the message uh, in a more clear way. Um, And some adults do this very naturally already um, and that's gonna benefit them in their interactions with students. And then um, it also helps to talk with variation. Um, so ch- altering the tone of our voice, um, the speed uh, uh, you know of our speech, really maybe using a really excited up, upbeat, uplifting voice when we're excited, and then maybe using more calm, uh, kind of collected tone when we're trying to help a child work through a challenging situation or solve a problem. So these are these are tips we strongly encourage adults to consider using while they're wearing masks.
0: You know, one thing that I would add to that um, in some places, uh, special education staff or staff who work with students who are deaf or hard of hearing have been able to find the clear masks where the border is uh, more solid material. But the part directly over the mouth is clear so that they can You know, the smile can be seen or lip reading can be facilitated as necessary. I think those are are pretty difficult to find. They're not as readily available as cloth masks are. But we do know that in in some places and in some situations, those are being used. And I, I think those are a fantastic idea if and when they're available.
1: Great idea! I was one of those kids that really looked for visual cues mm-hmm. <laughs> from yeah. my from my teachers and um, and and others, you know, authority figures and whatnot. I definitely see this as having an impact. So, some great suggestions.
2: Yeah, that's a good option. The clear masks are definitely a good option. I know my son has to have that for Spanish, which we have ordered from Amazon. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. um, hopefully, they'll get yeah. here in time. <laughs>
0: Um, and we always recommend that teachers smise. You know, if you've watched America's next top models, smise, yeah. you smile with your eyes. Lots
1: of yeah. that. <laughs> ah, I like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. smise.
2: Definitely. So we all know that separation anxiety exists, especially with young children as they may enter, you know, a child care program or early learning program or preschool program when they're separated from their parents. But what, what is your opinion? Is it better or worse or the same in a pandemic?
0: I I think, again, uh, and Allison, please chime in, but I think this is another one of those things that are really going to be situational. Um, Some children are really going to be stressed at having been home in um, a stressful environment or perhaps for some of our children in a dangerous environment. So they're going to be anxious to get back to school and the separation anxiety is going to be minimal. But for some of our children, this has been five or six months at home with mom and it's you know they've kind of gotten to do some bonding and so the separation is going to be harder um so it's it's really going to be situational different child to child family to family but the important thing for us all to remember is that kids most kids adapt pretty well and are pretty resilient so um it's one of those things where if you've had previous experience with a child, if you knew them previously in your school or something, then you may have an idea of some of the kids who are really going to be struggling when it comes time to leave mom again, and some of the ones who are going to um, just walk in. I will never forget, I was so upset with my youngest child uh, when he got ready for kindergarten. He was like, no, I'm good. I'll ride the bus today. I'm like, no, you won't. What are you talking about? So, but he he never experienced any separation anxiety. He was just good to go um but not all kids are like that and we have to remember that that kids are all different and they're going to respond differently even in this environment
3: yeah and i would even just add that uh, some of the challenges that both uh Educators and students are going to face is that arrival and drop off is going to look quite different, especially in childcare um, or in pre-K settings. Um, you know, adults are going to be limited in their access to buildings a lot of the time. There are going to be temperature checks and staff showing up with masks. Um, so, so that arrival piece can create some, uh, you know, some anxiety for parent and child alike. So, we've got some really good uh, tips. In our um, COVID considerations webinar around things teachers can do to make that arrival process go a little more smoothly um, and create less stress for the child. So we will have that um, that, uh, webinar linked in social media as well if you'd like to hear some of those tips.
0: And Allison, you raise a good point, and I want to make sure to say this, because I did start my career teaching kindergarten, and those of us who work with very young children know that sometimes the separation anxiety is not as much the child as it is the parent. And Mm -hmm. I I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of parents with separation anxiety this year.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, one of the most popular posts we've had on our social media came from Faith Duncan, who's our director of pre-K. And uh, parents loved it. Teachers loved it. It got a huge response. And that was, when you're dropping off your child, make it brief. <laughs> don't mm-hmm. don't yeah. longer. And uh, so many people, uh, teachers and parents, actually got behind that and said, absolutely, amen. <laughs> Let's all try to do that. Um, yeah. So I've, I've given uh, faith credit for probably one of the most popular posts, Simple but one of the most popular that we've had on our uh, social media. Um, and I'm assuming, guys, that w- when we talk about the routine, you know, the temperature checks, um, obviously there's limited access into the programs uh, for parents because they're trying to limit the the coming and, and going of, of folks. I, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say pressure, but th- th- it's important to maybe make this fun as well. Is that fair mm-hmm. to say?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, you could play music when kiddos arrive. You could do a sidewalk chalk on the path into the school with some really positive messages. Give kids choice. Do you want to hold my hand walking in or would you prefer not to? So, um, you know, teacher dancing on the way out to pick up kiddo, you know, uh, teachers are great at being creative and turning some not so fun situations into fun situations. So now is the time to utilize that creativity um, and that skill of being just fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No better time than now. Let me ask you this. And this is a very serious question and we've heard this discussed in other formats, but can an increase in isolation like this increase the risk for child abuse and trauma? And and are we going to be playing catch up with what we ordinarily would be observing and responding to uh, in a school setting?
0: So, yeah, unfortunately, uh, the answer briefly is yes. But to give a little more context to it, we know that children most often are abused by family members, caregivers or other people in authority. Um, So a lot of times uh, in situations where there is familial abuse now in isolation, the children may have been, uh, for lack of a better term, trapped with their abuser or confined with their abuser. Um, We also know that isolation increases stress. And with all the other factors that are at play, uh, sometimes that stress gets taken out on the most vulnerable people in the household often the children. Um, And the other aspect of abuse, um, aside from the immediate physical abuse that we're all concerned about, we have to remember that children are online more right now. So they're much higher risk to be exposed to pornography or online predators. Um, So that's another component that we have to keep in mind. Uh, And it's gone on for so long, the, the isolation and the separation from typical and, and normal for the children routines that um, the duration has al- has compounded what was already potentially a toxic situation. So keeping all of that in mind, um, yeah, we know that it can increase it. And to speak to the point of um, the impact of the other stressors, lo- loss of jobs, uh, loss of housing, things of that nature, we know that in the last recession in uh, the early aughts, for those of us who were uh, working in the field then, there was an increased risk of abuse and trauma. We saw more abuse. We saw more trauma. We saw more things of that nature happening to children during those highly stressful times. And one of the things that we saw go up significantly was the rate of abusive head trauma in children. So we do know that just in general, stressful situations do increase the likelihood of abuse and trauma. And when you add that, uh, compound that with isolation in a stressful time, yes, it absolutely can make things worse. But one thing that we have done, um, my group, my unit, we work on the mandated reporting for educators. Um, We've really done a lot of work with our partners at Prevent Child Abuse Georgia, the Center for Child Advocacy, uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and a number of others. Um, We've done some webinars and delivered content on seeing those signs, what to expect when children come back, right, and looking at, um, we called the last one schools on deck, and it was schools getting ready for children to come back, looking at those signs of abuse and trauma and the emotional abuse all of those, and just kind of reviewing some of the mandated reporter protocols. In most um, educational environments, there's a designated reporter in the building. So while anyone in the building can certainly file a or make a defax referral, file a report at any time, um, we typically see that there is one person in the building who is charged with actually making that report if another person gives them the information. And from the from our perspective in education uh, our classroom teachers um, sometimes when you make a referral, you would wind up in court or in other legal actions. So rather than have classroom teachers pulled into that, we have that designated reporter. So one thing that we're doing is we're creating additional training for those designated reporters, because we do believe that that there's going to be some increased incidences and some things that will come to light that occurred during isolation. So we're um, we have another Uh, webinar coming up on virtual mandated reporting or mandated reporting in the virtual environment and we'll also be working on getting some more training out for that designated reporter uh, space and the people who are working in that.
2: That's great advice you have uh, all both of you have provided really great resources and um, advice but I wanted to ask you what's your advice for programs and or teachers on how to monitor student wellness through these transitions?
0: Well, I I think one thing that we can really focus on, um, classroom teachers have the unique perspective of being right there uh, with the kids, the people who are in the classrooms with them you know, day to day, every day, have that perspective. But I think one thing that's going to be critical as we come back from isolation, particularly in our centers where children may have been previously, or in uh, school settings where children may have been in that school for previous grades, the staff who work with all students are going to be the ones who will be able to see a difference. So if I have a child who's moving from the two-year-old room to the three-year-old room, that may be a different teacher, or from fourth to fifth grade, it's a different teacher. But the school counselor or the nutrition staff or other people, media specialists, may have seen that child previously and may be able to recognize some changes when the child comes back. So that would be one way to monitor that wellness. But um, as time goes on, of course, having our classroom staff um, well versed in check-in processes and and keeping an eye and um, just knowing that in some settings it's going to be easier to see things than in others. Allison.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's you know it's tricky because in in young children. Signs of emotional emotional distress or even trauma may present a little bit differently than um, when, uh, you know, an adult who's experiencing maybe a mental health concern. So um, we do tend to, you know, those who work in the mental health field tend to really rely on sleep patterns and eating patterns as um, something to look out for any major changes in those areas that might be a sign of concern, but also, as we referenced earlier, children who are are, uh, expressing physical complaints, my stomach hurts, my head hurts, Um, you know, behavior changes, children often don't communicate feelings with words, um, but they will communicate through behaviors, Um, and so just looking at patterns and behaviors, and really any change from this child's Baseline mood um, are things that we want to be on the lookout for, and just like Cheryl mentioned, that that communication across age levels um, and really teaming amongst staff members is really going to be the key to doing some some good observations um, and just having those discussions around maybe when a kid needs some additional support.
1: So, Allison and Cheryl, one last piece of advice uh, for. Our listeners today, we know that this week and next week and uh, for the several days to come, we're going to have the school bus stop. We're going to have the drop off at school, the temperature checks and all those things. I'm wondering, can one of you give some advice to families in these circumstances and uh, the other uh, give another final piece of advice to programs and schools?
0: I think the thing that we need to communicate to families is that we are all doing the absolute best we can um, and keep communicating that we're staying in touch with our local departments of public health, that we're looking at the guidance that's coming out of uh, DPH and the CDC. We're mindful of everything that's happening. And it's going to be important to keep reminding people that as we progress through this pandemic, what we know changes. In the very early stages, masks weren't recommended in order to conserve them for medical personnel. Now they are. So it's going to be really important that we communicate and that we let our families know that as we learn, we're going to give you that information and we're going to keep you just as informed as we are Uh, and that we are going to take as good a care of your child as we possibly can. And while we're not you, we're gonna do everything in our power to keep your child safe while they're with us.
3: Yeah, that's that's such good reassurance, um, Cheryl. I would say for programs and for schools, uh, specifically educators, I really just wanna remind teachers how important self-care is right now, I think we need to really acknowledge that all of us are going through a pandemic, we are going through a crisis, and we've been enduring this crisis for quite some time. Um, Teachers really, by investing in self-care and monitoring their own wellness, um, physically, emotionally, then they are investing in their students. Um, So, you know, try to seek out the supports that you need in order to be your best self, Um, you know, whether that's social social support or even um, mental health support, you know, taking care of your physical health, um, getting enough sleep, eating regularly, um, and just having someone that you feel you can confide in when things get tough. Um, so, yes, absolutely. I would say uni need adults, uh, especially educators. We need to be sure to put on our oxygen mask before we can put on the mask um, for children around us.
1: Mm, great advice on both sides. Appreciate that. Allison O'Hara, Program Director of Inclusion and Behavior Support with our Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning and Cheryl Benefield, Program Manager for Safe and Supportive Schools at the Georgia DOE. I know we have a hotline, Georgia Seeds for Success. That's 1-833-354-HELP, H-E-L-P. Or you can email inclusion at decal.ga.gov. And Cheryl, for more information from DOE, where uh, can folks go?
0: You can go to the Department of Education website and on the Safe and Supportive Schools page, you'll find a lot of information around everything that we do in the area of student safety as well as school safety. And that's also where you'll find um, some COVID-specific resources um, that we have around some of the webinars we've done and other things that we've provided. So you can find us there. And there's a, a lot of great information in other places on the DOE website. But I would say start there.
1: Excellent advice. Uh, Ladies, thank you both. We want to absolutely lend our support to families and to programs as they're going through uh, what has to be the most unusual back to school, maybe in our lifetime. And um, we're here for you. Uh, We definitely want to help you out. So please take advantage of uh, these great resources uh, from both DOE and DECAL as we head back to school for the 2020 2021 school year. Allison and Cheryl, thanks so much for being with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you. you. Now your questions from the water cooler. Hi,
2: my name is Gabby Garza and I work in the nutrition division here in Atlanta. My question for commissioner Jacobs is while working from home these last few months, what has been a new hobby that you enjoy doing or a new recipe that you've tried making? Well, thanks, Gabby. That's a great question. So um, at the beginning of all the COVID stay at home, uh, my daughter and I made a lot of sweets, but we had to stop that because um, that wasn't good for our our (laughs) weight, the COVID-19 as some people call it. Um, But since I do have a few extra hours since I don't have to commute, I don't have a new hobby, but I did uh, take on a home improvement task of taking down wallpaper. Um, because I was told by a dear colleague at decal, oh, it's just so easy. It'll peel right off with the secret recipe and it doesn't peel right off. And it's a complete disaster. And my dining room <laughs> is a disaster and it's, it's a mess, but I'm not giving up. I'm going to get the wallpaper down some way or another. And I'm not paying someone. I'm determined to get it down, to get it done. That's what I'm doing in my spare time. Taking well, the wallpaper.
1: Now, see, I just thought of something, um, What about pressure washing?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, we did some pressure washing. We did. That That was fun. See, so it's not a hobby. It's really like home improvement type activities that you never have time to do because you're either commuting or doing, you know, kid activities on the weekends. So it's definitely more home improvement. We did pressure wash and all the neighbors are very jealous of how great our driveway looks.
1: And did you uh, rent or buy your pressure washer?
2: Uh, so we borrowed a pressure washer from my dad. He really loves to pressure wash, and he let us borrow it. <laughs> um, but he really wanted it back because he likes to pressure wash like on a daily basis. It is pretty. <laughs> and fun. you also
1: said it's good for stress relief, right?
2: It, it is absolutely pressure washing. It's really fun. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Time-consuming, but fun.
1: So drive by the Jacobs house, and uh, you'll see the fruit of their labor. Driveway. <laughs> bring on COVID-19 because the driveway looks great so yeah we learn right. different things under these circumstances that's great and it's time to give you a chance at winning a nice prize in the decal download quiz we'll draw one name from all the correct answers to this question email your response to decal download at decal.ga.gov here's the question Name one strategy that teachers can use to improve communication with students while wearing masks. Name one strategy that teachers can use to improve communication with students while wearing masks. Send your response to decal download at decal.ga.gov. We'll draw one name from all the correct answers received, and you'll win a nice prize. We can't wait to give it to you. Thanks for playing.
0: Thanks for tuning in to DECAL Download. For more information, visit our website at decal.ga.gov. The conversation continues on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Follow Commissioner Jacobs
1: on Twitter at C-O-M-M Jacobs.